again, I just want to tell a little story that uh, Nobel laureate and founder of Behavioral Economics, a guy by the name of Daniel Kahneman, uh, told a story one time about uh, a man who sat down one day after a very hectic day to listen to a beautiful uh, symphony. So he sat down, he put his headphones on, the rest of the family is in another room, and he's sitting there and just enjoying his time. And about 20 minutes into this wonderful piece of music, all of a sudden, for some reason, uh, there was this dreadful screeching sound. And it's the kind of sound where, you know, that just kind of jars you. Have you ever had that happen to you? Uh, later on, when he recalled the story, he came to the conclusion quite emotionally that the screeching sound at the end of the symphony had ruined his entire experience that afternoon, had ruined the entire experience. He went from being thrilled to being destroyed in the space of about five seconds. And it was all he could remember about the experience. Uh, Kahneman, Kahneman said this. He said, happiness is being happy in your life. Now, this is not a believer, this guy. He's just, you know, social scientist and, as I said, uh, uh, behavioral, uh, into behavioral economics. Uh, he said, happiness is being happy in your life. Uh, it's something that someone experiences in the moment, Somebody, ex someone uh, experiences at that time immediately. You open your door to your house, and all of a sudden, the light goes on, and 30 of your closest friends go, surprise! And, you know, I've often wondered, have, have people gotten heart attacks from that and, and actually died? I bet, you I bet you they have, but I mean, if that's ever happened to you, you know, once your heart begins to start beating again, uh, you collect yourself, and you probably have a great time. Everybody you love is there. It's a party. There's music. There's food. Uh, it's just, it's, you're happy. It's in the moment. It's at that occasion. It's immediately happening. It's a great time. Then he went on to say this. He said, life satisfaction, happiness, life satisfaction is being happy about your life. Happiness is being happy in your life. Life satisfaction is being happy about your life. It's, it's the happiness, he said, that exists when we talk about the past and we look at the big picture. Life uh, satisfaction is a thing that we experience, according to him, when we take a step back and we kind of survey the landscape. You know, you, you look at years, even decades of your life, and in spite of the valleys, we see good things. It's like that old, you know, I used to be a big John Denver fan, and uh, John Denver uh, years ago sang the words, I have to say it now, it's been a good life all in all. And I remember hearing that and, and saying, way back, you know, way back, saying, I hope, I hope I'll be able to say that. But sometimes we focus so intently and so exclusively on one particular thing that many times it ends up ruining the big picture. And it can ruin our lives. Now, this morning, I want to look at Haman. We started looking at him last week and uh, asked the question, what was it that eventually brought about Haman's destruction? Spoiler alert, okay? We'll get to it next, uh, next week. What was the one thing that brought this man, who was the second most powerful man really in the world at that time, just under Xerxes, the king of Persia, what brought him to ruin? And the question is this. Is it possible that that could happen to us? 
We've been slowly progressing through the book of Esther, and we've seen, I don't want to retell the whole story again. Uh, if you've been here, you know, we're up to chapter 5. But basically, we're up to this evil man, Haman, a, you know, a, a sinister combination of brilliance and evil. And that's always not a, that's not a good combination. And he had decided to kill this man by the name of Mordecai, who would not bow down to him, because when he walked in the room, he just didn't think he was worthy to be bowed down to. And his fragile, tragic ego was wounded, and he determined that he was going to destroy this man. But it wasn't enough just to destroy this man. He wanted to destroy everybody that looked like him, everybody in his family, anybody that had anything to do with him. So he wanted to destroy the entire Jewish nation, which was inside the empire of Persia. They were all going to die with him. So he gets the king to sign an edict uh, that a certain, up till now, unnamed people who were no good... No good for the kingdom, the long-term health of the kingdom and the empire, that they should be eliminated. The king signs it. The signet ring goes on it. It's the law of the Medes and the Persians. Ain't nothing going to change that. So Mordecai, the older cousin of Queen Esther, immediately asks her to go in and use her influence to implore the king not to let this impending holocaust occur. And when Esther pushes back, since she knew that an unannounced appearance before the king could easily and probably would mean her death, Mordecai sends word back to her, and it changes her life. And this is what Mordecai said to her in in chapter 4, verse 12. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So she goes. We talked about that. She goes, and she is received by the king, Lee just read it. He holds out the scepter, which means that she wasn't going to die that day, which was often the case when you approach the king unannounced in this paranoid, suspicious cloak-and-dagger world of the royal court. And it says in verse 3, he says in verse 3, Xerxes, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. Which was not to be taken literally. It's kind of like if I go up to a friend of mine and go, buddy, listen, anything you need, I'm there for you. You Oh, really? Uh, You know, uh, can I have your house? You know, can I have your car? Can I have your wife? No, No, I don't mean that. I don't mean literally. I mean... Basically, anything I could do, I'll try to do for you. I mean, basically, that's what it meant. I'll accommodate you to as great an extent as I possibly can, which was actually sweet music to uh, Esther's ears, especially when she thought that there was a much better than even chance that when she went into the throne room, she probably would have had her head severed from her shoulders that day. So, I mean, that, you know, anything at all would have been gravy at this point. So she invites them to lunch uh, that afternoon, and at lunch the king says... So, what is it? You know, what's, what's the deal? And it says in verse 7, Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to a banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. So as the king leaves... He goes, goes out to finish his day's work, to think about what he's going to wear at the banquet, you know, that afternoon. And uh, Haman leaves too. Basically, we have an expression, 
Floating on cloud nine. Do you know what that means, floating on cloud nine? I actually went yesterday to look and see what, the, you know, what's the, the how, do, how do we even come up with that thing? It basically means, you know, there was, it was thought at one time that there was several le levels of clouds, and cloud nine was the highest level. And so you've, you're, you're, basically you're floating on the highest level, and it's just, it, you just can't imagine getting any higher. That's what it meant. He walked out, and that's, what, that's kind of the feeling he had. And the reason for that is because this incredibly proud incredibly arrogant man had just received one of the biggest ego strokes of his entire life. He, by name, had been invited alone with the king himself by the queen to attend a banquet the next day. And Esther, in the, in the hearing ear of Haman, said to Xerxes, Dear, uh, make sure Haman's name is first on the guest list. And he was flattered beyond belief. But, knowing how arrogant and prideful he is, uh, it is not a stretch of the imagination that he, you know, he, he may have feigned humility. You know, like when they call their name, the Academy Awards, and one of the award shows, they call their name. They go out and they go, <laughs> me? It's like, it's, it's a, you know, and really, they've been telling their friends for weeks and weeks and weeks, if anybody else gets this award, it is an injustice. I killed it. I was the best. You know, it's kind of that kind of thing. See, arrogant kind of people, prideful people, they, they do that. We're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. And, and, and so verse 9 tells us that he walks out that day flying high. Lunch was great. The lobster was amazing. It was caught fresh that morning. The wine was aged. Grizzled veterans who attended, who usually give him grudging honor, were falling all over him. The young women, half his age, were flirting with him because now it was obvious to everybody that he had not hit his career ceiling yet. You think, oh, he's second in command. I mean, how much higher can he go? For some reason, things were just falling this guy's way. He was still on an upward trajectory. And people want to be around people like that. They just do. And they want to be around. And it says in verse 9, Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. Now, the, the Hebrew word that is used there, tov, uh, it can also be translated pleased. It can also be translated good. Uh, it is, as a matter of fact, in other places in the New Testament. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, remember the creation? What happened after everything was, things were created one by one? God looked at it. God took a step back. And what, did, what was his pronouncement? It was, it was good, okay? Basically, they could have said that God was in high spirits. It would have been, it would, it would have been okay to translate it like that. Um, he, he looks around, and you know what? As God creates things, it just was so right. And it did something to him on the inside that put God kind of almost in high spirits, almost just joyful, just, just brimming over with joy with what he had created. Tov, good, really, really good. You know, when things are really, really good, they have an effect on you on the inside out, Okay? It just, it bubbles out. And when he, Haman, thought about what had just happened, he literally went skipping down the road home that day. That's how he went home. Okay, he's, he's kind of floating down to his house that day. It had been for him a very, very good day. But why wouldn't it have been? I mean, why wouldn't it have been? We already know that this guy is about, you know, one thing and one thing only, feeding his massive ego. And he had not just been fed. He had been stuffed stuffed. So for the most part, his massive ego on his dance home, you know, the needs have been met for a time. 
But, you know, it's like at Thanksgiving. You know, you finish Thanksgiving dinner, you sit down and watch the 4 o'clock game, right? And you say, and you, with everybody, I want everybody to hear this. I want everybody, I'm on record. I am not eating until at least noon tomorrow. I'm not eating one more thing. It's not, it's not going to happen. It can't happen. I have no room. There's nothing. And then that night, you know, you're kind of rooting around in the refrigerator. And you're kind of shamefully, you know, and somebody catches you and you feel like embarrassed and you're going for another piece of pie or whatever it is. It's like, you know, it, it, it doesn't last for, it doesn't last nearly as long as you think it's going to last. And so this guy had been gorged. His ego had been gorged. But as I said, it doesn't, you know, that type of hunger, the ego hunger doesn't go away for very long. And on the dance home to his house, I'm sure he was congratulating him with all, himself with all sorts of narcissistic talk. You know, like uh, Stuart's, this really dates me, Stuart Smalley's character on Saturday Night Live. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough. And gosh darn it, people like me. Do you remember that guy, some of you? It's just, you know, he's got, he's got a set, he's self-talking to himself saying, how good I am. Everybody likes me. You know, I'm the belle of the ball. It's like, it's like Gaston, not to overdo the movie thing or TV thing, but, you know, I, you know since Beauty and the Beast is the top in the, in the box office right now, you know, Gaston, you know, at, you know I, he's the greatest, right? I deserve the best. And that's, was the, that was this guy, Haman. But listen, it's not enough to say it in the mirror. The person who is self-consumed needs to say it to others, and they need to watch as other people shake their head in agreement. That's how it is with people whose lifeline is ego-stroking. They are often on a mad dash throughout their life to prove how wonderful they are so that people will turn around and will say to them, yeah, you are the best. You're the brightest. You're the most beautiful, the most talented, the most academically proven, comically ingenious, financially blessed, wisdom-filled, creative, athletically gifted individual with the most amazing, you know, children I've ever seen, exquisite taste. I'm blessed to know. I'm just blessed to know you. And on top of that, you have two season tickets to the Giants and the 50-yard line. So I, I really, I almost hate you at this point, right? Others, they need to know that others think they're as great as they are. And when he got home, there were some people there along with his family, and he, this guy was just arrogant enough to assume that everybody would love to hear about how great he is and that they would all sit there and they'll be shaking their heads as he regales the tall details of, of his personal glory. So it says in verse 10, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all. Haman added, I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. You see, this is what insecure people do. They, among other things, have to let, let everybody know about their prosperity, about how they're doing financially. They need to let other people know about their Progeny, 
what the latest accolade or achievement or school that their kid just got into or recognized for, and they need to let people know about their position. In the, you know, in the country club, in the company, at work, at school, whatever. They just need, they need to have constantly be bringing that up to others. And listen, don't let anybody tell you. Don't let anybody tell you that getting people to sign on and join you in agreement as to how wonderful you are doesn't bring with it a measure of emotional happiness. It absolutely does. Don't let anybody tell you that it can't stave off an inner raging insecurity that has embedded itself in your heart that sends you out to constantly seek affirmation in the first place. It does. And it can. For a while. But listen, since your happiness is such a fragile thing, there's always something or someone that will steal it away in a moment. In Haman's case, it was a little Jewish man who was probably a mid-level official in the kingdom, a man by the name of Mordecai. Now, even with all the amazing and wonderful things he recited to himself and to others, there was this aforementioned situation that threw everything off. It says in verse 13, remember what he said when he got home after telling everybody how great he was, how great his sons were, how honored he was, how he was this, that, and the other thing? It says in verse 13, and he's looking at all his guests now, and he's probably sitting down now at this point, and the happiness has drained from his face, and he's looking sad, and it says this, but all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Now, the Hebrew translation uh, that was translated in the New International Version, satisfaction, uh, means comparison. It means equal. It means level. So if you preface it with the negative, it means no comparison, no equal. Uh, You know, the two things are not equal. One rises above the other constantly. You know, when I was a kid, um, there was a park that wasn't too far from our house, and uh, in the park there was a, a seesaw. You know what a seesaw is, right? Everybody knows what a seesaw is. Uh, um, it, teeter-totter, teeter-board, whatever. Um, uh, it's a long, narrow board supported by a single, you know, pivot point, most commonly located near the center, as it is in that picture there. And two people get on it, and one goes up, and the other goes down, and one goes up. So, uh, you know, if you happen to be on there with a friend and they have a seat, and then you have a seat, it's immediately obvious who's heavier, right? I mean, immediately, right away. It's like if you, you know, because they got to kind of, if they get on first, they kind of got to go like this, and then they're on, uh, and then the other guy gets on, and right away, it becomes obvious, you know, who's, who's the heavier dude. Um, because we, we already know, the heavier kid's soon going to be sitting on the ground, the lighter kid is going to be six feet off the ground, so the heavier kid, what he does to make this fun, instead of just sitting there, he kind of pushes his legs, give it a real good push, and the harder he pushes, you know, the more, you know, he'll hoist himself up, and, you know, the other kid has gravity on his team, so it's easier for him to not have to use his legs so much. While Mordecai was sitting on the ground in the dust, so to speak, and Haman was high and lifted up, things were great for him. But Mordecai, every day, had this annoying habit of standing up when Haman walked in, when everybody was bowing down. 
The fact that he didn't buy into the narrative that Haman had crafted for himself. The fact that he was not impressed with Haman and all his greatness. The fact that he stood when everybody else got low to the ground threw his entire life off balance. Mordecai took up so much space in Haman's mind that the other good stuff, and listen, is it good to have children? Is it good to be, you know, honored by people who know that you're doing a good job? If God blesses you financially, are those, are those good things? I think they, they can be very, very good things. But all those things that he had in his life, he couldn't even see anymore. All he could see was Mordecai. Haman felt less than him. He felt disrespected by him. He felt little. He felt insecure when he was around him. Mordecai seemed up, and Haman always seemed down. If you ever had a person in your life who you suspected did not think that you were the greatest thing since the invention of the Internet? You ever had people around you like that, you know? Maybe it was someone who rejected you many years ago. You were once close with them, but they rejected you. Whatever, you, you never figured it out, but it just happened. A person who stole your joy whenever you saw him, whenever you saw her. You, you might not even know how, like I said, things got out of sorts, but since then, this person has taken up entirely too much room in your mind. In fact, you could probably say, if you're honest, that you may be preoccupied with them or have spent a lot of time being preoccupied with them. You know, maybe you, maybe you stalk them on the Internet still. Who, you know, I don't know. And in a sense, if, if, if that is true, you are in bondage to them. I thought about the word addicted, and I said, well, wait a minute. Addicted usually has to do with substance or behavior, you know, that's compulsive. You know what I think? I think, I think addiction may be exactly the right word a lot of times for relationships that we have and, and, and bondage that we are in. Um, we can be addicted to people. I really believe that. People can hold us in bondage every bit as much as heroin. I thought uh, Beth Moore had a very good quote on this when she said this. She said, make no mistake, we serve whatever masters us, and nothing masters us more completely than the person who refuses to bow down to our rights, desires, or demands. We become fixated on the one from whom we cannot get what we want. True? It may be someone who you see as standing in the way of you moving ahead organizationally speaking. It may be someone who doesn't see your obvious giftedness that you have always seen and who your mother has always seen. It could be someone who, as I said, hurt you deeply and there has never been resolution. And as time goes by, you, you know, maybe you think of them a little less, but whenever you do think of them still, those same old feelings can be resurrected very quickly. And it's then you know that you are in chains. You're in chains. I know that there were times in my life when I was well aware that someone didn't like me or my ideas. Early on in this church, when I started as pastor, my goodness, uh, there was a lot of people who just 
you know, I, I, you know, I, don't, I don't think they were, they were on board with me, you know, at all. Uh, you know, sometimes they were actively opposing me. And, and sometimes I knew that they just didn't approve. And I got to tell you, a lot of times it just drove me crazy, you know. It really did sometimes. On the outside, I was the picture of patience and quiet, godly determination. But on the inside, I would not have minded if they got hit by a bus in the afternoon. I got to tell you right now, not to kill them, not to kill them. A broken bone would have been fine. It would have taken their mind off of me for, for five minutes, okay, and, and given me a break. Uh, and you're probably sitting here going, you know, this guy, uh, it is, he's up front. I mean, what, what, what is this guy doing? And... and uh, it, so I, I don't have negative feelings like that towards anybody. There's no one I can even think of that, that comes into that category. Folks, it may not be negative. It may be someone that you are just mentally preoccupied with. Maybe you are infatuated with them. It may be someone whose approval would mean so much to you that you have tried to invent ways to impress them or gain their well done or their check mark. And I have to call it what it is right now. It's bondage. It is bondage. You are in bondage to that person. Every bit as much as Haman was in bondage to Mordecai. You are in bondage to someone when you are deeply preoccupied with them. I don't care if it's negative or positive. If they're taking up all kinds of space in your brain, you're in bondage. People spend chunks of their lives secretly pining away for a lost love or trying to do things to win someone's admiration. And the positively weird thing is, I was thinking about this this week, because this has happened to me. The, uh, the, the weird thing is that you start off preoccupied maybe with someone in a positive way, but then they don't respond to you. Has this ever happened in your life? Then you start hating them. I mean, it's like, you know, you, 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 you so for some reason wanted their check mark. You wanted them to say, you know, great, you're amazing, you're wonderful, you do everything. And then they don't give it to you, and you're like, that guy, you know what, he's like, he stinks. You know, basically, you're going, you're going, well, how did that happen? Well, it happened in me because I'm messed up. That's, that's how it happens. And it was no fault of theirs. Is there any way to judge yourself to see if perhaps you're in bondage to someone? Is there a way? Well, let me, let me ask you 10 questions. I'm going to ask you 10 questions right now. No, don't call anything out, please. Just keep it to yourself, all right? But you know, you know, these are rhetorical questions, and you could just answer them yourself. Number one. Whose approval would you give almost anything to gain? Next. Who would you do almost anything to make happy? You would stand in your head, you'd do an Irish jig, you would, you know, whatever, to do, just to make this person happy, and they're not. Who, if you heard that they were moving to Australia, would you cause you to break out in dancing on the spot right now? And if, if we have any Australians here, I mean, moving to America, you know what I mean, just getting as far away as you can. If someone was just moving out of town, never to come back, you would just start breakdancing right here in, the, in, in one of the aisles. Who, if you were honest, occupies too much mental space in your mind and has in subtle ways affected other relationships. Maybe you just suspect it, but you think it has. It's impacted other relationships. Who is it that at times, or maybe, maybe many times, makes you feel as though you are out of control with your emotions? 
Who is it that you at times feel that you've made a fool of yourself in front of? Have you ever been around people and you say, why did I say that? What, 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 what am I, stupid? I mean, why, why would I say something stupid like, you know, you, you kind of have done that several times in front of this person, or maybe regularly. Who is it that you feel you need to perform in front of? Who is it, even when you are in a room with a hundred other people, that you, uh, you know where that person is in the room at any given moment? You could say, hey, where is Shirley? She's over there. How do you know? Well, I don't know. I was just, I don't know. I just, you know, kind of thing. Who is it that ruins the party for you when you realize that they are or are not coming? Who causes you to say, what's wrong with me? I never act this way with anybody else. If you're saying fill in the blank name with someone, you got a problem. You got a problem. And you may be in bondage. And whether you know it or not, it's affecting your life. It really is. These are often people who long after they have left our lives continue to have a hold on us. It may be because of their continued hold on you that you've always had trouble entering into a satisfactory, happy, other relationship because you're still fixated on that person who rejected you. Maybe, it may, may, you know, maybe it's that. And the thing is, often, we don't see how it's impacting our other relationships, especially, listen, especially our relationship with God. In Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10, it says this. Paul said to the church at Galatia, those churches, he said, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. How can we serve Christ when we are chained to another master? You can't serve two masters. How can we begin to heal? How can God begin to heal our own lives when we cling to the remnants of something or someone that is not worthy to hold the top spot in our lives? For good or for evil, positively or negatively, someone else has our hearts. And when someone else has our heart, when they have them chained, Sometimes we get crazy, right? Haman couldn't enjoy anything. To the outsider, he had everything. He had, he had a charmed life. But no matter how hard he tried to look past Mordecai, he couldn't do it. And it, 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 look, uh, it, those gathered there at the house, when he got done saying how great he was, he, he just, you know, he threw up on them and basically said, you know what, uh, this guy, he, everything was wrong in his life because of that man. If that man wasn't in my life, things would be totally different. And there was nothing he could do about it. Or was there? After hearing his sad predicament, those around him, most of them sucking up to him, as we know, came up with a brilliant idea. Verse 14. It says, His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. <laughs> Pretty cold, huh? This suggestion delighted Haman. 
and he had the pole set up. Two things, two things to note here. First, he thought that doing away with Mordecai would solve his life, would solve his problem. And why not? Listen, oftentimes when, when we are chained and we are pro- preoccupied with a person, they become the focal point. And, and you know, especially if, if the preoccupation is negative, when things go bad in your life, somehow it always worms back to them. I don't know how this happens, but it always kind of like, you know what? Uh, you know, so you, you lost your job. It's Sally's. You know, if Sally hadn't, if John hadn't, if Jane hadn't, you know what? You know, you lose your job. You, 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 your talent isn't recognized. Your favorite team loses on a Sunday. Somehow you could figure out, you know, how if, if they were gone, everything would be better. That things would be better. And you know what? Things might be better today. But the other thing is this. Notice this. The problem goes much deeper than just the person. And getting rid of the person does not solve anything. See, the problem basically goes a lot deeper. It goes to the heart of you and the heart of me. It's a heart problem. And let me tell you something. Heart problems don't get cured by removing a surface irritant. They never do. If he succeeded in doing away with Mordecai, which was his plan, it would not have been too long until the next Mordecai came along. And you could bet he would have come along within weeks. The problems brought that were surfaced by Mordecai's presence would have surfaced again when the next Mordecai came on the scene. You know, you look at a man like in the New Testament, a man like the Apostle John. Do you remember what Jesus' nickname for John and his brother James were? Sons of Thunder. Now, <laughs> Jesus called them Sons of Thunder. Uh, the reason he called them Sons of Thunder, because if you got in their way, look out. I mean, look, these, are the, these are the disciples. Look out. Uh, you, you get it. He didn't call them that because one time they got angry. It was just, oh, there was one occasion about three weeks ago. Remember on the 17th we were walking and you got mad? And you, you don't get a nickname. You get a nickname when it's kind of like a life pattern, when it happens a lot and people are going. In other words, when they said sons of thunder, oh, yeah, we know. These two guys, right? They would know right away. And they probably didn't even look at it as kind of a character flaw, a character deficiency that needed to be correction. I'm sure that James and John loved the title. They saw themselves as a hammer and every problem person as a nail. When they walked into this little Samaritan village and they got a rude reception, remember in the Gospels, they looked for weapons of mass destruction to rain down from heaven. And Jesus rebuked them. And yet, do you know... You know what they called the Apostle John at the end of his life? You know what they called him? They called him the Apostle of Love. In fact, there was a legend. I don't know if it's a legend. It may be true. We don't, we're not, you know, it's not 100%. But I, th- I, I, could, see it. I could see it being true. Uh, there's a story that when John was on his dying bed, he was the only one of the disciples that made it to old age. The only one. All the rest were martyred. He's lying on his deathbed near the end of his life, and one of his disciples came up to him, this ripe old age, probably 90 years old, uh, his beloved community all around the bed, and they begged him. They said, Father, Father John, Father John, can you give us one more word? Just one more word. Speak to us one final word. And what, it report, what he reportedly said was, love one another. 
How does someone get so utterly transformed, so turned inside out? There's a little clue that John gives in his gospel, a clue that he offers several times. Again and again, he describes himself in his gospel, not as John. He describes himself as the one Jesus loved. Remember? The one Jesus loved. Because you see, in the long run, love changes us. It changes us. And when, when we see the love of God operating in our lives, and when he saw the love of Christ before him day in and day out, and we see that he is the source of our acceptance, he is the source of our love that we crave so much. It begins to have an effect on us. He is the one that accepts us fully when we humble ourselves and we bow before him as Savior. We don't need other people to give us everything we think we need. He is all that we need. And folks, Christian, that is the great struggle if you as a Christian lose hold of or have never embraced the fact that you are loved by God, you will always and forever be searching for affirmation, be searching for affection, be searching for acceptance that you crave, and you will always be disappointed. Always. Comedian Jim Carrey presented a uh, similar struggle at last year's 2016 Golden Globe Awards ceremony. Uh, uh, before announcing the nominees for best motion picture in a comedy, well, why don't, why don't, we, just, why don't we just play that? You look at it. Two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. The actors 
dressed to perfection, designer clothes and gowns and tuxedos. They all doubled over in laughter. But as the camera panned their faces, it seemed that his words rang truer than any Hollywood or we are comfortable admitting anyone in Hollywood. There's something uh, a little unsettling about having as a final goal in life to be a three-time Golden Globe winner. Because you know what happens when he stands up as a three-time Golden Globe winner? The search goes on for number four. And it never, ever ends. What will satisfy? What will? But listen, when our wills become conformed to his, he starts to make us different people. He does. We, we no longer see every problem and challenge as a nail that needs to be hammered. We'll see our relationships in a different light. We'll view service and suffering and sanctification as part of his plan and path for us. We may even see that person as part of the plan of God to do some stuff in our lives. Those with this insatiable search for significance and satisfaction, they try to draw near to the one who they think will save them. Or they try to destroy the one who is keeping them from their salvation. Haman wanted Mordecai destroyed. And you know how you could see the depth of his hatred? You, got, you, you, you want to know how you could see how, remember I said we do strange things sometimes? He didn't just want to kill him. That wasn't enough. He needed to humiliate him. That's why he said, you know, make a pole 75 feet high on a hill, high enough so that everybody in every part of the city could look to the west and see the outline of a figure of a man with a pole sticking through his abdomen as a symbol against anyone who would dare dismiss him again, who dared to not recognize how special he was. And in his death, he wanted to mock him because he had wounded his, his fragile ego. I said before that life satisfaction is the thing we experience. When we take a step back, we survey the years, we take the whole thing in, and in spite of the valleys, we can say, Good, good things. But sometimes we focus so intently and so exclusively on one particular thing, maybe even on one particular person, that it could end up ruining the picture, even ruining our lives. Here's the good news. If you want to turn that around, can happen today. It can start today. Well, how do you do that? Well, number one, first you have to recognize this situation, whatever you want to call it, that you're in. You got to recognize it as sinful. Do you you know what the only remedy for sin is in the Bible? I haven't found any others. I've, I've looked through a lot of, you know, all the Bible many times. The only remedy for sin is repentance. The Bible says that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. The prophet Isaiah, 800 years before Christ wrote about, uh, before Christ was born, he wrote about him, and he said this, he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He paid the price of our sin so that we would never have to. And when we trust in Christ, we are forgiven. And we go on. Part of your repentance, you know what it may mean? Stopping the social media snooping, honestly. Uh, Stop putting yourself in a position that will only inflame the old idol. You know, the old worship tendencies. Number one, repent. Second thing, real quick. We need to start seeing that person, especially if it's, if it's negative. You need to stop seeing them uh, as, as something, you know, crazy and weird and monster. You know, you need to see them as someone who God loves too. You think God loves, you think God loves that person? Again, I've, I've, I've read a lot. I see no indication that he doesn't. I, I think we need to start seeing that person as a child of God's creation of God's too. You know, we make people one-dimensional, and they're easy to dismiss when we do that. We talked about that. But that, listen, that person is going to spend an eternity somewhere. Do you know that? They will spend an eternity somewhere. The Bible talks about heaven, and the Bible talks about hell, and it doesn't talk about anything else. And let me tell you something. There will be conscious existence for that person 10,000 million billion years from now. And you know what? We need to be concerned about that. Don't you think? I think we do. I guarantee you one thing. I guarantee you one thing. If it's someone who you hold up on a pedestal, you know, the other one, I guarantee that uh, if you go deep into their hearts, you have them for lunch six, eight, ten times, you're going to see some of the same ugliness and brokenness that you have inside of you too. It, it works both ways, you know. They, they're a child of God. They're not a superhero, Okay. Last thing, forgive them. Maybe, maybe, you know what? Especially if it's a negative sort of bondage thing that you're in. Do you know what forgiveness is? Forgiveness is the great bondage breaker. It breaks the hold of Satan in your heart. It breaks the chains that you have carried, that you have been entwined, that have been wrapped around you, sometimes for decades in your life, affecting other relationships, affecting your relationship with Christ. It's time to break them. Haman never got over his bondage to Mordecai, and he ended up paying a terrible price, which we're going to see soon. If you have been paying the price, if you are in bondage today, today is the day to start in a new direction. In this resurrection season, you can get your life back.